they clearly too seems to be a broader issue around the permits of um, of e-hailing services, at least permits for uh, for those vehicles to be operational. My understanding is that he said if you have an application, if you have submitted an application for a license, that that the copy of that application uh, in and of itself should suffice. So as long as there's some acknowledgement uh, that that shows that you are you you have kicked off the process, that you're busy waiting for that license, then uh, you should be able to qualify due to the delays there. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll try and keep having this conversation over the next couple of weeks, especially uh, so that we're able to assist if, if there are challenges and where possible. Well, let's turn our attention then to our health talk. And today uh, we're talking about epilepsy. Last week was Epilepsy Week. And of course, it's really about just raising um, awareness about this neurological condition. Let me wa- invite onto the show Professor Girish Modi, who is Professor and Head of Neurology at Wits University and also Head of Department of Neurosciences at Wits University. Uh, Professor Modi, good morning. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you on. So uh, what we do on the slot is that, of course, we'll talk about uh, the particular disease that we're profiling and then we'll give our listeners an opportunity uh, to ask you questions directly where you can give them the appropriate advice. So I think a good question really uh, to begin with is what is epilepsy and and what do we know about what causes epilepsy? Okay, so... Epilepsy is a disorder um, which uh, widely known, well known, it's occurred throughout the history of man. I mean, we know as far back as Julius Caesar and beyond that, that people have suffered from this malady or condition in which strange behavior occurs. And what it actually is, and it was a, a British scientist called Eulings Jackson, who in the 19th century described this thing properly, where we now know that epilepsy is due to discharges, electrical storms in the brain. So what happens here is that your brain goes into some kind of overdrive, you get a storm of electricity running through it, the entire brain functionally switches off, but because of the storm of electricity, certain certain manifestations occur. The ones that we all know of, that we see, where patients fall down in the mall or on the street, they get stiff, they jerk, they bite their tongues, the so-called grand mal, the big madness, as as the English uh, translation is, is what we are familiar with. And that's the one that's so frightening that everybody's afraid of this. And because of the nature of the manifestations, uh, it's obviously gotten some crazy reputation of bewitchment, witchcraft, throughout the ages, this Mm. has persisted. Um, It's just a manifestation. But in actual fact, it's a proper physical scientific disorder. And the storm of electricity that I'm talking of can occur spontaneously, in other words, without provocation, or it may occur as a result of certain stimulations. So, for example, somebody who drinks and on the withdrawal side, they may have a fit. Um, somebody whose sugar levels drop, they may have a fit. Somebody who is exposed to bright lights, 
Sometimes in children we can see that may have a fit, uh, cause a fit. Hyperventilation may cause a fit. Head injuries may cause a fit, etc., like a concussion. So there are many, many different triggers. But when we, we look at this, the first thing we need to also define, and not just epilepsy, but the seizure. So the seizure is the manifestation of epilepsy, epilepsy being the disorder. And the seizure is what we all commonly describe as a fit. And this is what we are talking about. And this can be classified into two different categories. The one which we call generalized seizures or epilepsy, and the other which we call partial seizures or epilepsy. And this is quite important from a clinical point of view, from an understanding point of view, because in the generalized, what happens is they, there's a spontaneous discharge coming from deep inside the brain, spreading rapidly to all parts of the brain, so rapidly that there's no warning, you have no idea it's going to happen, and you just go, boom, you lose consciousness immediately, fall down or whatever, like timber, and then you get the, the, the actual seizure. And so that's what we call generalized epilepsies. There are different types of generalized epilepsies. So the ones where all that happens is the patient becomes stiff, the other one where the patient jerks, a third one is where they first get stiff and then they jerk, and there are those where you get what we call rapid movements of the body, jerky movements called myoclonic. There is even one where all that happens is the patient slumps to the ground. We mm. call it atonic, where there's no stiffness, nothing. They just limp down immediately. And then there's the, the, the more interesting one, which we call absence. And this happens quite often in children, the so-called petty mal that we've heard of, where what happens here is that for about three seconds they switch off. And this can happen a hundred times in the day. So you're talking to someone, some child, and the eye blinks, blink, blink, and they're gone, and then they come back as if nothing has happened. So those are all the clinical or physical manifestations of a generalized seizure of epilepsy that begins somewhere in, a, in, in, in what we call the epileptic center in the brain stem. And there, there's no warning. So this is a risky one because you don't know it's going to happen. You can't stop your car when it's going to happen and you can't prevent any injuries. These are the people that hurt themselves. Mm. I want to talk about the, the, the causes, because you say that yeah. sometimes so it's unprovoked. Causes, yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about causes. Yeah. Right. So some of these epilepsies are what we, you know, doctors are very clever. When they don't know, they use the term idiopathic. So almost 80% of what we call generalized epilepsies, we don't find a cause. Mm. In the remaining 20%, about 5%, we now know that these are gene-related. So they've identified the genetics, the genes that cause this in almost 5%. And although we know that a large percentage of patients have a family history, those patients we haven't identified, but they are distinct, what we call genetic epilepsies. And then in the other group, it's secondary and in this country, it's very important, South America, South Africa, and India, parasitic infections. Okay, so there's an infection called cysticycosis or tapeworm in the brain, and that's an important cause of epilepsy, right? Then you can get, in, in Africa especially, you can get malaria, another infection as a cause of, of epilepsy. 
Head injuries are causes of epilepsy. Strokes can cause epilepsi. Tumors of the brain can, or can cause epilepsy. Mm. And then there's a group which we call the development, developmental epilepsies. And these are children that are born with slight aberrations in the way the brain formed. So, you know, when, when the brain is forming, it forms within the first four weeks of, of uh, conception. So in that four weeks, everything happens. And so things can go wrong. You might be still on some medicine. You might have had some toxin or something. And so the development changes. And that slight alteration in the development can produce epilepsy. So those are the main categories of causes of epilepsy. Mm. And and when we talk then about the triggers which which you touched on, mm. especially where you have a, a disease that predominantly... Uh, 80% of those who suffer from it, you, you don't have a clear cause. What are some of the triggers then that people can, can know about? Yeah, so they must be wary. So if you have epilepsy, the one thing that will trigger you, as in, you, know, you shouldn't do this, but if you really want to test yourself, sleep deprivation. Lack of sleep is the single most important trigger. We actually use it as a way of trying to identify whether you have epilepsy or not, because we do what we call a sleep-deprived electroencephalogram, or EEG, and that will trigger off electrical seizures to make the diagnosis. So sleep deprivation is very, very important, and that's why we always say sleep hygiene is very important for the brain. Then toxins, drugs, alcohol, you know, all the recreational drugs, they can all trigger it off. On a more simplified note, I told you flashing lights. Mm. So, you know, we know for a fact that there are certain types of epilepsies, which we call photic epilepsies. They generalize, they're quite benign, but they get triggered by television pixels. They get triggered by all these uh, Game Boys and Xboxes. And so there are certain sensitive, susceptible children, and you're triggering this in them. So one has to be wary of that. Uh, so drugs, toxins, flashing lights, and then fluids, fluid balance and nutritional balance. You know, parents always tell us three meals a day, there's a reason behind it. We don't want fluctuating levels of sugar, mm. and we don't want to have fluctuating fluid levels, because they can also cause seizures. And we see that often, like we're just going through this heat wave. I mean, you and I feel tired because of, the, of not uh, you know, hydrating enough. A patient with epilepsy can trigger off it. Mm-hmm. And again, when it comes to these triggers, uh, uh, Prof, in in terms of the result, so what they do to our bodies is it the same effect that you you still have this electrical uh, storms that basically yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. so the brain goes to so the same thing happens mm. so you, you must understand. The seizure is, is the thing I'm talking of. The mm. seizure is the electrical storm. So if you have recurrent, epilepsy is the condition where you have recurrent unprovoked seizures. Note the words I've used, recurrent mm. unprovoked seizures. Right? Yeah. So a normal person can get a seizure. It can happen once or twice in your life, but you don't have to have epilepsy. You may, you know, have done the stupid thing of drinking too much and then on the recovery side where you dehydrated, 
you you know your sugar levels drop, your alcohol, your your fluid changes dramatically, and then you can get a fit or a seizure. A- and it how doesn't yeah. mean you're an epilepsy sufferer. Yeah, a- and how is it diagnosed, Prof? Yeah, so epilepsy is diagnosed uh, clinically. It's the best way, the hundred percent way, is if a doctor like a neurologist sees it, recognizes it, and and sees the accompaniments. But that's when you have those, you know, the, the, the so-called grandma, where somebody falls down, bites the tongue, etc. Mm. Remember, it's an uncontrollable event. So witnesses may witness something that may not be right. Okay, so firstly, visualization. And so it's quite often important, like I tell families also, if you think the child is epilepsy, you know, we have smartphones. Video, bring the video to me, I can have a look. You know, so that's the first form. Then as the doctors, as the neurologists, what we, what we do is we run these tests on the brain called the electroencephalogram, or EEG. So the same way that the heart specialist does, does your ECG, the brain specialist does your EEG. And on that, we look for abnormalities that suggest that you have epilepsy. So there are three types of EEGs that we do. The normal random one, which is, so the EEG has very high specificity in the sense that if it's abnormal, it tells you what you have. Mm. But the sensitivities are not the same. So the normal EEG that we do has a pickup rate of 60 to 70%, so you can miss patients, right? We then do what we call a halter EEG, where it's run over 24 to 36 hours, that increases the sensitivity to about 80%. And then the sleep-deprived EEG, which is, has to be done under controlled conditions because you could trigger a fit, that increases the sensitivity to over 90%. So we do the EEGs to identify that you have the epilepsy, and then we have to image or scan your brain to see what's causing it, or is there a treatable or identifiable cause. And that's how we approach epilepsy. Mm. And when it comes to, 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 to the treatment then, Prof? Yeah. So then again, we, we decide on the basis of the type of epilepsy. So remember, I told you the one category is the generalized. Yeah. The second category is what we call partial or focal epilepsies. And in there, we have two groups. We have simple partial and complex partial. So the complex partial is the difficult one where they get the auras, they get the strange smells. Sometimes they even say they smell blood or some bad smells, etc. Mm. And then they then get the seizures after the, 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 the aura, uh, so to speak. The simple ones, consciousness is maintained throughout. You just see sometimes, you, I don't know if you've ever seen them, people are twitching on the side of the face or the finger is twitching or something. So those are simple, what we call simple uh, focal uh, epilepsies. So depending on the type of epilepsy, we have certain treatments. So the generalized ones do best with medicines. And there's a whole range that we have from valproate acid to lamotrigine to uh, Keppra or Redilev, various drugs. And so you choose according to your patient's size, weight, etc. Right. So some drugs we prefer not to use in young female patients some we use, etc. So, you know, your, your neurologist works that out. Uh, the partial and the complex partial, again, 
depending on the type of complex partial that you have, we choose certain drugs. But there's a range of medicines that we have. So medication remains the gold standard and the first line of treatment. Mm -hmm. There are various other options. So people always ask about uh, the ketogenic diet, and it does work, especially in young children, and especially in children what we call, with what we call a refractory or these bad epilepsies. You know, they occur early, early in life. And so mm. the, the, the ketogenic diet does help that. Then there are these other modalities of treatment, like vagal nerve stimulation, where they put an electrode and they stimulate the vagal nerve, which inhibits those discharges, the electrical storms in the brain. They also useful. Um, sometimes you combine that with the medicines in patients who have very bad epilepsy where you're not willing on the medicines. All right. Uh, Professor Modi, we're going to continue our conversation shortly. We're focusing on epilepsy for our health talk today. And of course, uh, you are more than welcome to then call in and interact with Professor Modi. The number to dial 011-714-2006 on the WhatsApp line 0614-104-107. And on Twitter, it's at SFM Radio. The hashtag there, SAFM uh, Talking Point, is a professor and head of neurology at Wits University and Head of Department of Neurosciences at Wits University. So all of your epilepsy-related questions will be taken on the other side of the latest news headlines. Hashtag SAFM Talking Point. All right, we continue the conversation on the talking point this morning. And for our health talk, uh, we're focusing on epilepsy. Professor Girish Modi is our guest for today. Uh, Professor Modi, I, I just have two questions uh, be- before we take it uh, to our listeners. And that's when it comes to the symptoms of, of a seizure. Can they be confused with perhaps other illnesses? So uh, earlier you were talking about how, uh, you know, one of the ways in which, you know, a seizure can manifest itself is, is twitching that's similar to a stroke. And, and are, there way that, are there ways that we can tell the differences? So, so the types of seizures that we get are classified into two forms. The one which we call the epileptic seizures that we're talking about. Mm. And then you also get what we call non-epileptic seizures. So the non-epileptic seizures are the ones, for instance, where they say an anxiety or depressive disorder, and the patient manifests like a seizure, but when you do the EEG at the time they're having it, there's no storm in the brain. Okay. Or, for instance, the non-epileptic seizure. Remember I said sometimes you drop your sugar too much, you can get a seizure. Mm. Or you, you know, you have a slight concussion and you can get a seizure. Now these patients don't have epilepsy, but they have similar manifestations in terms of the seizure. And so sometimes it's easy to to figure out, and sometimes it's difficult. And that's why we have these different modalities of testing to try and determine which one it is. All right. And it can be quite difficult to differentiate. Okay, so let me then go uh, to to our listeners because I also want uh, to give us a chance towards the end of this conversation uh, to to look at um, 
the way in which we need to respond, what is the appropriate way to respond when somebody is having a seizure. Before we get to that, however, I want to take some of the WhatsApp voice notes and uh, our callers that have been lined up. Let me begin with uh, Mosoka. You're calling us from Pretoria. Good morning. Hello, Mosoka. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, I just wanted to find out some information being someone who has once suffered from epilepsy, actually. Mm. Yeah, I do recall doing uh, the scan, what is it called, the ECG or something. I, I don't even remember the name of it, but wherein they put some uh, things on the brain and then they observe you overnight, stuff like that. Mm. But then the doctor couldn't find anything that uh, could trigger my epilepsy. Actually, in my since 2012, since having epilepsy, I went to about four neurologists, and none of them have ever given me a reason because they just say everything looks fine, but I might just continue taking medication like epilepsy and stuff like uh, for, for, for diagnosis. Uh, to just keep my, myself well, but I've not had any seizure for the last three years now. So I just wanted to only find out in that case where in how possible is it when when they can't find anything wrong with you? What is exactly the problem in that? Professor Modi? So, yeah, <laughs> those are the patients that we have great difficulty with. So the, the seizure or the epilepsy diagnosis that made clinically in terms of the symptoms, the, you know, the, the, the witness accounts, the symptoms before and after. So if someone says, I fell down, I didn't know I was going to fall, and I hurt myself, one starts thinking about it. That's why we do the, what he was talking about, the electroencephalogram or the EEG test. But as I alluded to the discussion earlier, that in fact the sensitivities of these tests is not 100%. Mm. So we often have situations where we miss the diagnosis. And we need to repeat this fairly frequently to try and eventually get to a hard copy diagnosis. And if you persist, and if the patient does have epilepsy, you will be able to give them a diagnosis. But some of these patients have seizures that are non-epileptic, and that's why the testing remain negative. Mosoka, mm. uh, before you go off the line, I mean, have given the fact that it's been three years that uh, where you haven't had a seizure, mm. how is this affecting your quality of life? I mean, are you still concerned that they may return? Uh, yes. The thing is, uh, sometimes I do feel like it's a return because you get into the feeling of, what happens before you have them. Mm. Like in most cases, my heart would beat fast, and in some cases, maybe, uh, what can I say? You just feel like your hand is starting to vibrate, or your leg, or you, you can't feel the bottom part of your leg, from like from the knees going downwards. It just seems like you're starting to be paralyzed, even though you can walk, but that feeling, it's it's like, I know that the, the type of feeling, but... Uh, it doesn't, it just stops from there because I start trying to distract myself and think about other things and then within some hour minutes, 
to an hour. Mm. I just become normal, back, back to normal. And then, yeah, in most cases, I actually sleep too. But even when I sleep, it it, it, it wake me up. But then I just have to go and drink the medication again. Mm. And, and tell me... I can't avoid it. Yeah. Do you, do you find that you've had to tell people around you? Of course, I imagine your family would know about this, but uh, some of your friends and, and that you, you have to, you know, give them guidelines on, on what to do. Uh, yes, because, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, actually, when I'm someone who has went through a different process, because when it actually hit me, it was in 2010, in 2012, I mean, mm. and I was still uh, doing grade 10 by then. So it uh, affected me when I was also at school. So most of my friends knew about it. But, you know, as one of my teachers who was like, uh, he, had a grand, he had a grandmother who was a traditional healer. Mm. Apparently they said they could heal those things, but I didn't work. Mm. And then again, uh, also in, in varsity, but I was not in class. I was just... Uh, at home, but some of my friends were there, so I've also suffered from it two times when I was in university. And then, uh, so quite a few of my friends got to know about it as time went on. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. It was way easier. Mm. Masoka, I can imagine just you know, the, the what, what you have to do in order just to plan and, and be aware of, of what, of what might, might happen. Yeah, it's, it's 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 quite a lot, but you know, mm. it 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 also depends on the people you have around you. Like, also my 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 partner is a very supportive person, so it's easier mm. when you've been with someone for a long time and knows the type of condition you might you have. But even though she has never seen me in that condition, because I've not had it had it for like it's almost four years. Okay. It's almost four years. All right. All right, Masoka, thanks for calling in and, and for telling us about your experience. And I suppose, Professor Modi, with the complex cases like you described earlier, what do you uh, as professionals that then say uh, to people like Masoka? No, we, we monitor. We, we, we try our level best to get to an answer. We get to the answer, then we're fine. But sometimes you have to review, review, monitor. Mm. If he hasn't had a proper seizure for four years, then one one would maybe reconsider the diagnosis in him. Mm-hmm. Okay. L- let me play then some of the WhatsApp voice notes that sure. uh, have also been coming through. Uh, so what I'll do is that we'll play one at a time and I'll okay. give you an opportunity to respond straight after. Okay. Good morning, this is Katina. Thank you for a good show. My, my daughter, she's now 12 years. She started to have that thing... Uh, epilepsy or a fit last year around November. But she was shaking and shaking then she started to just to shut down after maybe for um, five minutes. So I'm not sure what caused that because I said I we, we went to, to see the doctor then the doctor said she, she have that uh, um, anxiety. Oh, she's distressed. So I'm not sure what caused it. Can you please ask the doctor to help me there? Anonymous. Thank you. Professor Modi? So um, she's describing something. The most important part of the description should be whether the child becomes unconscious from the start 
or during the process, or is the child completely awake when that shaking is happening? Now, in, in, the mo in, in epilepsy in general, the jerking is a very specific pattern and will last one to two minutes maximum. But there's always loss of consciousness when that happens. So uh, that becomes important. But to just call it anxiety or stress, uh, one must be very wary that one is not jumping to conclusions. You know, a good history, and, and then that child really needs to see a, a, a neurologist to try and work out what's happening. You would need those tests I'm talking about, uh, and a proper solid history would be very important. Okay. So my advice on that, please see a neurologist. All right. Let's go to another voice note. Good morning, Pedro. Speaking to Unati. Can you please ask the prof for me? I was diagnosed with epilepsy in 2012. And it was part one. It's, it's not that he had the epilepsy that I can feel when the seizure is about to happen. And then I, I would sit down. Then it happens for maybe for those few seconds. And then it, it goes again. I'm able to function with my, my normal life because I, I graduate. I'm able to go to school. I'm able to graduate with my diploma in accounting. And then, But I, I was... I've given a medication, Lamotrogen. It was it was 200 megabyte before, and then I have been had a seizure for the past five years, and then they reduced it last year on November to 100 since it's been so long. So I wanted to ask the professor, what like at what stage can we say that like is fine? I can stop the medication on my life because I can feel like uh, it's like I'm fine. But I'm also what what was seen? Can a person stop the medication of the epilepsy, or should you take it for the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. All right, Professor Modi. So the first thing is you saw he said he can feel it coming. Mm. So that becomes those partial epilepsies that I spoke of. The generalized, you don't get an aura. So he's getting an aura, he sits down, and he has his what complicated or complex uh, seizure. He's been on treatment with Lamotrigine or Lamictin, and this has now worked very nicely. He's fit-free for five years. The general rules are if you're fit-free for two years with a normal EEG, you can wean off the medication. Because in these patients, there's a up to 60% cure rate once the seizures stop more than two years. It's almost as if the brain has reset, the, the, the focus in the brainstem has switched off, and they are fine. So yes, the answer is he should try to wean off, but it's a graduated process. Mm -hmm. If you suddenly stop too quickly, you can go back to basics, back to square one, and start fitting again. The relapse rate when you withdraw from medication is also is also quite high, 70%. So one has to do this properly in a controlled way and with the help of your doctor or your neurologist. And there's a very good chance that in him, with five years no seizures, that he could go off medicines completely. Do you have to take medicines for the rest of your life? In some of the epilepsies, yes. In some of them, no. It depends on the type of epilepsy and the cause of the epilepsy. 
Mm. And just just for clarity then, Prof, would one need to go back and do an ECG before being taken off the medication? Sorry, Prof? Everyone says, everyone says ECG. Sorry, Professor Modi, I, I missed you uh, a bit there. You, your line was cutting. Apologies no, no, for that. You mean EEG? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, because <laughs> the ECG I is the, the heart. Problem hey. is everyone is more worried about the heart than the head. Anyway, <laughs> the answer to your question is yes, you need to do an EEG. Okay. Because only when that's normal. And you then will start withdrawing. Okay, fantastic. Thanks for that. So we'll take more of those WhatsApp voice notes then. Morning, SAFM. And to listeners and to the honorable guests, I'd just like to uh, find out with regard to epilepsy, whether it's a myth. When a person gets an epilepsy attack, they say you must give them anything silver to hold, like a bunch of car keys or a spoon. Is this a myth or this really helps to control one's epilepsy attack? Thank you. Simple answer, it's a myth. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, but there are two sides to it. So just digressing a bit. Uh, people do that to distract the epilepsy or to try and distract the epilepsy sufferer, thinking they can stop the jerking and all of that. Mm. You see, that's the myth. You can't do that. It's because of this discharge of electrical activity in the brain, and that cannot be stopped unless it stops itself. Mm. And, and, and do you have any idea where the, the use of uh, silver items may have come from? Uh, I don't know. I think historically <laughs> what people did is mm. to prevent the biting of the tongue. Uh, they put spoons into, silver spoons into the mouths of mm. the sufferers. The only thing that achieved is breaking of the teeth. Okay, so, so it's not a good idea not then to also put not something in somebody's mouth. No, no, no. Mm. Especially don't put your fingers, they can bite it off. Mm. Because that clenching of the jaw that occurs during a seizure is uh, strong and very, un- very difficult to overcome. Okay, I think we're going to get a bit, I want us to get a bit more into detail about, you know, the do's and don'ts of somebody who's having a seizure, because I think it will be an important place to end the conversation. So we'll take a couple more WhatsApp voice notes before we do that. And but before we get to all of it, in fact, let's take a quick break. Hashtag SFM Talking Point. We continue the conversation on the talking point, and I see we're quickly running out of time. I will be, we've, we have been focusing on epilepsy for our health talk today with Professor Girish Modi. Uh, so, Professor Modi, I, I think I will have time maybe for one more WhatsApp voice notes before uh, we get into those do's and don'ts. To Unati, Good morning, President. Speaking to Unati. Can you please ask the prof for me? I was diagnosed with epilepsy in 2012, and it was part one. It's, it's not that he had teeth epilepsy. All right. Unfortunately, it looks like yeah that that is uh, is one of those that we had already played. So, uh, Professor Modi, let's then just get into the specifics of what to do and what not to do when somebody is having a seizure. Okay. So the first thing is this here. Say you are walking 
in the mall and someone is sitting. Mm. Please don't try and stop the fit. You can't. What you need to do is roll the patient to the side so the mouse is hanging, mouse is facing down. This prevents the tongue from getting stuck at the back of the mouth. And so that's the one big danger in someone who's having a fit. Um, the second thing is, unless the patient knows they're having a fit or going to have a fit, don't put anything in the mouth. All that will do is break teeth or maybe hurt yourself, you injure yourself. If you put your hand into the patient's mouth as the patient is fitting, they'll bite your fingers off, I mm-hmm. promise you. It's a seriously strong clench. Uh, so try to avoid. So the only, only thing we advise, uh, you, you know these teething dummies? You get yes. that rubber thing that we, use, we give to babies. So if there's someone that knows the fit is going to come, like you know the partial epilepsy, mm. then we tell them, keep that in, and the minute you start getting that strange feeling, put that in the mouth to prevent your teeth from clenching and biting your tongue. But the main thing is turn the patient to the side. That's the main thing. Mm. Don't try and hold the patient down. Don't go over the patient and try and stop the patient from jerking. All you do is you trigger more fits. So there's a sensory component, component and touch may trigger that storm to last longer. Mm. Wait for it to pass. It will pass. It usually lasts, like I said, a minute, and then it's over. Once it's over, then you have to support the person in terms of, you know, helping them get up and get moving and sitting down, maybe, and then, and then don't give sugar water all the time. Just a little bit of fluids after the fit is fine. And in, in the instances where, where somebody's tongue does roll back, uh, Professor Modi... Move them how, forward. How, Turn Sorry? them to their side. Turn their head downward. Okay, okay. So you'll know that's happening because they go blue. Mm. It's a very frightening thing. And you think the person's going to die because they go blue. They do go blue because of the breathing that stops, you see. Mm. And just turn them to their side. That's the most important thing. And the other thing is move anything around them. So it's like if you've got a small room and, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, coffee stands or glasses or anything... Move that away. Let them have the seizure and it passes. Mm. Now, that's when you have nothing. If you have a person you know has epilepsy that you're living with or that you go out with, there's a little tablet called Ativan, sublingual. And so just before the seizure or during the seizure, if you can put that in the mouth, it's sublingual under the tongue, it will stop the fit. That's the one thing that you can do. But those are for people who know, and for you know, partners who know, and they can do that. Sometimes you know, parents do that with the children. I encourage that because that stops that you know that horrible jerking and, and, and clenching and all of that. Mm. I mean, do you find that when it comes to uh, people actually seeking assistance with epilepsy, that the the stigma and the myths around it, uh, do they have any bearing on whether people actually come to professionals like yourself? It's becoming less and less of an issue. I must say, um, when I first started training, uh, I worked with Kirsani Baraguanas, and you could see the hostile hostility to like come to a. Unfortunately, we had an epilepsy clinic there, mm. and on a, on a, on a, on a Tuesday, and we have like 100, 150 patients. 
the people are very uncomfortable. I think it's it's changing. I think people are beginning to be more aware. And the NGOs like Epilepsy South Africa are doing a wonderful job. They advise. You can phone in. They give you information. They have a nice website. You can look up things. Well, Professor Modi, I'm not sure what's happening with this line, but I'm I'm not hearing you clearly. Okay, let's try again. That's much better, yes. Okay, sorry. So what I'm saying to you is I think that whole issue of the myth uh, or, or the stigmas still is there. Mm. You know, and one of the biggest problems is employers in, in industry and in uh, the corporate world. The minute you have epilepsy, it's like your career path changes, your progression changes, uh, your job, uh, you, you get a high risk of losing jobs. And so those things haven't changed much, and that's a big problem. Then there's also the stigma that it might be like, you know, possession and all of that. And that's also still there, but it's much less than it used to be, I must say. Um, I think education is the most important thing. And when you have epilepsy, you must contact Epilepsy South Africa, mm-hmm. the NGO that, you know, is, is outstanding in the work they do, outstanding. And, you know, they give you all the information that you need. Uh, you look them up on the website. You can communicate via email. You can remain anonymous if you're afraid of that. But they, they, they're very good in this respect. And this is a kind of disorder or illness that requires support, requires emotional support. It requires societal support. People feel terrible when they know they have epilepsy because of its unpredictability. You know, mm. you can be walking around and then boom, you fall down. And, you know, it's not a nice thing. It's really not a nice thing. But like I said, if you have this condition, see your doctor regularly, get your diagnosis properly done, and take your medicines. One of the biggest challenges we have, more than the stigma, is compliance. All right. Professor Girish Modi, let me thank you so much for your time today on The Talking Point. And that's where we'll leave it uh, for our health talk for today, focusing on epilepsy. It's also just gone midday. It's where we leave it for The Talking Point for today. Sakina Kamwendo up next with the update at noon. We're back with you again, of course, tomorrow morning.